Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast where we occasionally have introductions, and mostly we have this. And uh, yeah, that it's it's the podcast. Things fall apart. Things come back together again. They fall apart again. We put them back together again. Yeah, you 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 know you know the drill. Um, yeah, and with me is James. Hello, James. Hello. And speaking of things falling apart, uh, we're we're talking today about the what 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 it looks like when this sort of Con- the interconnectivity of the American judicial system comes apart under the weight of uh, uh, dueling abortion laws. And with us to talk about that is a lot of people who have written a lot of very good stuff about this. So with us is Alejandra Caraballo, who is a clinical instructor at Harvard Law School Cyber Law Clinic, where she works on the intersection of gender and technology. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the show. Um, we also have Michelle McGrath, who is a public defender in New York City for like almost a decade and specializes in bail and parole litigation. Michelle, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. And finally, we have Yvka Pierre, who's a senior litigation counselor uh, where she works at the intersection of reproductive and criminal law, and she is on cases where folks are criminalized for their pregnancy loss. So, 
Eve Kelly, welcome, welcome to the show as well. So y'all have written, actually, I don't, it, it occurs to me that it's been long enough. It, this is still not published yet, right? Yes. It's, uh, so it's basically, we submitted it to CUNY Law Review and we're waiting for edits. We expect our Law Review article to be published in December. Um, so, uh, but, you know, we've, we've basically created a TLDR that we, we uh, collaborated for uh, Slate. So, we, you know, there's a 1,200 word article on Slate that you can read that kind of condenses down our article from like 25,000 words as much as we can do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, we, we, we were graciously provided the, the, the long one. And so we read the long one. We're going we're gonna to talk about it because, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a really interesting look at, I don't know, there, there's a lot of sort of points. of Okay, so I, I guess we should rerun and, and talk about what this actually is, which is that one, one of the things that's been happening in the last, I mean, basically since Dobbs, is a, a, a series of questions about what, okay, so it's a series of questions about what happens if you are in a state where abortions are illegal and you go to another state and you get an abortion there. And yeah, and there, there's lots of jurisdictional questions here. And yeah, and this article is a very, very sort of in-depth and really interesting look at it. And I guess... Okay, I, I, I want to jump into this at a kind of weird place, but I, I wanted to start with one of the things that one of the things that's in this article that's I haven't really seen much discussion of is about the way that the sort of safe harbor laws that states have been setting up are being like, if, if well, okay, the, the, the way that they can potentially be in the way that previous safe harbor laws for immigration stuff were sabotaged by the fact that like all of the cops are uh, sending like all of their stuff to each other. So yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. I guess it's like a lead into it. Yeah. I mean, I, with respect to specifically like how all the law enforcement is talking to each other, I think Alejandro might know a little more with respect to that. But when it comes to the way these laws are being written, they're, they really don't have the kind of teeth that sort of the politicians are spinning to the public. They're sort of letting folks think that, well, we would never, we in New York would never send you to Texas for anything related to the criminalization of a pregnancy loss. Um, and because of the way the law of extradition works in the United States, which is actually a constitutional law, um, it, it, it's going to be hard in a lot of ways for them to resist that. And so we have our article does talk about a little bit um, in, in actually great detail about how they could actually craft craft laws that would be a little bit different. Yeah, I think one of the things that, you know, this just this past week, there was the story that came out of uh, Nebraska where Facebook provided the DMs uh, of someone who is, uh, you know, being charged with, you know, it, it wasn't even charged with like, like there wasn't a formal charge of like committing an abortion, like the person that was being charged, it was like disposing of a body, like, and uh, basically hiding a body. And so Facebook like released a statement and was saying like, well, we weren't told that this had anything to do with an abortion. And like, that's the exact problem, right? Is that when states are gonna seek extradition, they're gonna bring charges that have probably nothing to do with it in the immediate, like on its face to do with abortion. It could just be like, you know, they can repurpose all kinds of laws. Like 
endangerment of a minor, right? Like they can do all these things that like would ordinarily like never apply in a pregnancy, but they can just kind of do it just to bring charges. Um, and so, you know, um, my colleague who, who's unfortunately not here, uh, Cynthia Conte-Cook has, has written about this extensively about like the criminalization aspect. But in terms of like how, you know, these, these safe harbor states, you know, these laws like are going to be very difficult. I think it is just really what we're dealing with the effects of surveillance capitalism, right? So like Facebook turned over these DMs. Facebook has been in the process of moving to end-to-end -end encryption, which basically would have made this impossible to do in the first place because it would have been similar to Signal. But what Facebook did is because they realized that they would have lost access to data around people's messages and what they're talking about, they made it optional instead of by default. And so most people who are not very tech savvy or very familiar or understanding of you know, who has access to the messages and whether the government can get access, they might not know that they can set this to end-to-end end -to -end encryption. And so essentially, like in pursuit of profit, Facebook doesn't enable this privacy feature. But this is the exact same kind of stuff, right? So like Facebook has access to this data, but there's also this whole shady system of data brokers that gets access to all kinds of data. And that's exactly how I think what you alluded to when you asked this question about ICE having access to basically all this information on immigrants that states had swore they would never share with federal immigration officials. Like ICE has built, basically built this entire shadow system where they're purchasing data about driver's licenses and all this stuff basically by pur purchasing it on the open market. And that bypasses all kinds of formal data requisition requests, warrants, subpoenas, all of those things that would normally be required because it's just freely available. So, you know, su suffice it to say, as much as these states may want to protect things on that end in terms of data, it's going to be incredibly hard to do so. And I think the, the, the previous efforts around uh, safe harbor for immigrants um, and asylum states and, and things like that um, it's just going to be really hard to enforce in practice. However, on the um, extradition side, when when like criminal charges are actually brought, that there there is some things that states can actually do to help protect the, uh, folks who are caught up with any kind of abortion-related charges in their states. Um, I just also want to jump in to say that the system works the way that it works because nobody's monitoring it. So when we're talking about law enforcement officials that are talking to one another and getting information through very informal means, right? Things that probably by the book would take a warrant to go from one place to the other just takes Marcy calling over Janice that works at the other system and getting something faxed over. Even if, they're not doing it out of malice. It's just, oh, this is out of convenience. It makes life a lot easier to get information from this place to that place. And folks have these informal systems that are set up that even when the law says that they cannot do it, if we don't have safeguards that, I hate to say go after people because it seems so carceral, but like that protects what the intent of the law is. It has no teeth, right? If your law doesn't stop Marcy from calling Janice and getting information on someone that they're not supposed to have, then your law doesn't matter. It's kind of in a nothing sandwich, right? Um, and I have plenty of thoughts and stuff to say about the criminalization when we get there later, because that's a lot of my work. But I, I, I think that gets to what Michelle and Alejandra and what um, Conti, who's not here, have found. It's just 
you got to have something more than nothing sandwiches, something more than something that seems good on the surface and doesn't actually help the people that we want to help. I, and I want to sort of help folks sort of understand how this plays out on the ground. So in the article, we we give an example, right? So maybe I've got a New Yorker who gets prescribed a uh, medication that would induce abortion and, you know, they bring it to their friend in a state where that's criminalized and they give their friend the medication. The pregnancy ends, maybe the person is concerned and they, they go to the hospital, um, quite often nurses and doctors are part of the criminalization process. And so, you know, maybe they call law enforcement official, uh, based on this information, they get a subpoena for that person's phone. So now they're in the phone and they can find out, wow, they got this medicine from the New Yorker. Well, now, now the person who, uh, took the medication perhaps is charged with homicide, right? I think what's key here is that they're not necessarily going to be charged with abortion. Maybe they're charged with homicide. They're charged with infanticide. And guess what? The person who came from New York is now probably going to be charged as an accomplice. So now we have a warrant for for a homicide for the person in New York. Because of all the national databases that we have, the NYPD, any of the law enforcement in New York is going to see, oh, that New Yorker's wanted for homicide. Let me go get that person. Um, and so when then that person comes in front of a judge, even though New York is saying or Connecticut is saying, you know, we're not going to give any resources to extradite someone related to the termination of pregnancy. Well, they're just being brought before law enforcement in front of a judge who sees uh, that they're wanted for homicide, right? And so on the ground... These laws don't have anything to stop them. And and so we've sort of suggested things that involve immediate right to counsel. People need to be released for extradition. Um, And we can talk about some of those more. But I think it helps to sort of give that example to see how it's happening, how it would happen in real life. There's something else I wanted to sort of talk about with this, because one of the things that, that on the sort of surveillance front, has been the way in which like what we're seeing now is sort of the culmination of like a bunch of the, the types of surveillance that have been inflicted on a bunch of different groups of people. You have the anti-sex worker stuff, you have the, the surveillance, the surveillance stuff that's been used against immigrants. You have uh, the sort of post nine 11, like, I mean, this is where the sort of fusion centers um, come from is the sort of like post nine 11 security state buildup. And then you have the stuff that's been used to go after activists. And I think, that's been really interesting to me to sort of, I mean, incredibly like depressing too to watch has been, yeah, like, I don't know, like I remember like the few, like one of the things, if you, these fusion centers were like all of these sort of like uh, law enforcement agencies, like share information with each other. Like, I don't know, like I, I remember in 2020, like they were like sending one of my friend's tweets around because that was one of the things they were doing to like <laughs> go after people during the protests. And like, I don't know. I I I, I was interested in, in in this question of of these fusion centers because it's it's this I don't know. It's this real sort of like like it it it, it really seems like the the sort of like the the next step of where all of this stuff goes is you know the fusion centers becomes becomes this place where it's really really easy to bypass the law because you know all of this stuff is just getting shared anyways and it, it brings up this other problem which I was interested in which is about like. To, to what extent can the state even control law enforcement? Because, like, okay, like, law enforcement are those, like, 
cops in general, uh, very reactionary. There, there's, you know, if, 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 you've, you know, if, if, if you go back into the history of, of the anti-abortion movement, there's a lot of them being like aided and abetted by the cops. And I was wondering, I don't know what, what you think about like, like what, what, what do you even do if the cops just decide they don't want to follow the law at all? And they're just, you know, there's going to, there's going to keep passing information on no matter what you do. I, I think Alejandra and I would probably, uh, differ on views about where things are going next, probably just because of the nature of our, our work and the things that we're dealing with the most. So this is going to be fun. So I, I actually think, so what yesterday, two days ago, whenever this airs, however many days ago, one of our colleagues at if, when, how my colleague, Laura Huss, who's brilliant, um, has been working on this research project for like the last two years, tracking cases of when folks are criminalized for self-managed abortion. Why self-managed abortion? Because that is the abortions that were happening outside of clinical spaces, right? That were, there were always questions about who can be criminalized for self-managing their care. There weren't as many protections in the law for a lot of helpers and things like that in self-managed care. So when her and her team looked at this data, um, what they found was that the biggest risk of criminalization didn't actually necessarily come from um, external forces looking at big data, right? But was actually like the hell is other people because what they were finding was that nearly the majority of cases of folks coming to the attention of law enforcement was coming from medical professionals. So I want to say I have the numbers in front of me somewhere. It's, um, well, so it's something like 45% of folks that were reported to the police were reported by some sort of medical professional, whether that's a doctor, a social worker, a nurse, or whoever that was at a hospital when they were seeking care or they were getting prenatal care at some point when they found out they were pregnant. That's how they came to the attention of law enforcement. Another 25, 26% of those folks that came to the attention of law enforcement came to people that they told information to, that they entrusted, whether that was a family member, a partner, a former partner, whoever the heck, right? So what we're finding is that the vast majority of people that came to the attention of law enforcement was because of folks, like actual people that had the information. And then that turned into them being individually targeted by police. And then that turned into their data being mined on their actual physical devices, not like big brother down, but small brother up. Right. So I, uh, when I certainly think about kind of how big data can be used and manipulated and like absolutely messed up to do a dragnet of folks, that's always kind of a possibility that's swimming. But I think the immediate possibility is like, how do you protect your individual data on your individual devices? What safety plan do you have in place about how you use the Internet wholesale? Because I'm a lawyer. I can't tell people to commit crimes, but I can tell people to be very careful about how you manage your devices and how you manage information. Who do you tell your business to? Full stop, right? Because that's how folks are coming to the attention of law enforcement. But can the laws control cops? I think what we generally see is like, probably not. Um, but will the courts respond to cops that work outside of the law? I think the lawyerly awful answer is it depends on the jurisdiction that you manage to find yourself in. Yeah, I think I think Eveka just hit it right on the head. Um, you know, in cybersecurity, your weakest link is always the human element. So like, that's always going to be the biggest concern, right? Like, who are you telling about any of this? Like, who knows about it? Um, like, you know, it, you know, on a 
tangential issue like with, with gender affirming care in Texas. Like one of the one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit against Texas, like one of the trans boys, like that that was like you know found out about you know uh, Governor Abbott's letter to like basically equate gender affirming care as child abuse attempted suicide and then when was taken to the hospital the hospital staff then made a report to like the department of yeah so i mean this was all in in the aclu's lawsuit and it's like it's just insane right so like that that's exactly the the thing like the the biggest risk is always gonna be the human element like your like the doctors the nurses your friends like family members you know it, it and it might even be people like you deeply trust you just never no. And so that's always going to be an aspect. But I think one of the, the biggest risks as well is, is that the amount of data that we have now, like even if that can't be used like in a proactive way to like target people on the back end, like once you do have that kind of friend turning you in, like all of a sudden they have intent. They have like all of these things from messages. They have location data. They show exactly where you were at what time. Like it's it's just like the perfect surveillance system that basically makes like any kind of reasonable defense, nearly impossible, right? Like they can show where you were, who you talked to. Um, and so like, I, I think the, the best tweet that I saw about this is from from someone who works at Digital Defense Fund. And they're basically like, they're, um, or, or actually it might not have been them. I just remember it was just like, there there is no conversation about criminal activity. There is only conspiracy. Like basically <laughs> it's like, anytime you, you're chatting about any of this stuff, like, it's basically like that that in itself can be potentially considered like criminal conduct and like that can be used like as intent and like all these things and like um in prosecution so like there, there's all of those aspects and i think uh just to answer your, your question like more broadly on on like what police can be done like like to be honest like as an attorney it's like been very very frustrating seeing qualified immunity just being like increased right like so so basically there's been no appetite by the courts to like like re- remove this doctrine or whittle it away. Actually, it's like being rapidly expanded, especially in the aspect around um, uh, federal agents, right? And now, like, there is some. Can Can you explain, sorry, briefly, just what what that is for people who don't know? Yeah, so qualified immunity basically means that you can't bring a civil rights lawsuit, particularly what they call like a 1983 lawsuit, which is uh, like the federal statute that allows you to bring civil rights lawsuits against state and federal individuals for. Um, any kind of civil rights abuses and it's everything from like discrimination on the basis of race to basically you know the a cop beating someone you know within an inch of their life so basically any any kind of civil rights violation so it's what's called like a 1983 case which is like the citation to the actual law that like dates back to the, the 19th century like it's part of um like the the ku klux klan act which like so this is a, a long-running like civil rights statute that really gained prominence in the last 60 years uh but you know it, so basically what qualified immunity does is it basically says, well, if it wasn't a clearly established right when this abuse or violation of your civil rights happened, the the officer or the government official can't be held like liable for it. So basically, like, and the way that they do it is very strictly interpreted. So it was like clearly established right. So it's like, well, it wasn't clearly established right that you weren't supposed to be able to be beaten with a baton. Like, and it's just like, What? Like it's some of these cases get really crazy. I'm not an expert on this by any means, but like I've I've you know read, come across a few, and it's it's absolutely insane. Like how how like narrowly they'll they'll oftentimes like define what like clearly like it's not like 
you know, a broadly defined right of like, maybe police officers shouldn't be beating people. Um, but, you know, and I, I think what's, what's even crazier is that this law review, or there's an upcoming law review article by this professor that I was just came across the other day. And like, apparently there is a whole provision of 1980, of the section 1983 that has been omitted from the federal register for a hundred and like 40 years. Basically like a clerk what? omitted a section and this law, like this, this, um, <laughs> like this law article basically uncovered this omission that should have been Jesus. in the federal register. It passed in Congress. I like, but hey, no. if you we did, it wasn't a clearly established right, Alejandra. So does it really apply? I, yeah. the, 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 the the one that I'm like haunted by that I that I read about that was that was one of the disqualified media cases was like there was a guy who got lit on fire by a cop with a taser. And the courts ruled that because there because there hadn't been a prior instance of someone attempting to do like the, you, you don't have a clearly established right for a cop not to light you on fire with a taser. Yeah. And, you know, you, this guy burned to death because, again, he got lit on fire with a taser. Yeah. And I like mean, because he, because there wasn't a clearly established thing. It's like this is like this is like the worst. Like, yeah, the like, secret like, is like, it's like, never it's never uh, clearly established. Like like mostly yeah, folks like, lose these lawsuits. <sighs> and I mean, this is where. You know, I, I think folks need to recognize, uh, and I say this very much as a lawyer, that the law is not at the end of the day what's going to save us. Like yeah. collective organizing and working together to keep each other safe is because the law is not designed to hold police accountable. It is not designed to keep people out of jail. In fact, it's designed to do the opposite. Right. And I think we're going to see a whole lot of folks start to understand how criminalization works in a way that they may not have realized before. And to your question, like as a public defender in New York city who spent many of those years in the Bronx, like, no, the police are not accountable to anyone and they continually yeah. do unlawful things all day. Yeah. And this is part, part of one of the solutions. And again, all of these are stopgap measures so that people have time to plan and plot and organize and, and, and do what they need to do. But, is that in these states that are saying, oh, we're not, you know, we're going to keep state resources away. No, no one shall use state resources to move someone for any of these, you know, criminalization of pregnancy. Um, but we imagine that law enforcement is generally a rather conservative group of people will simply disagree with that law and probably at times do things anyway. Right. And sure, we can file a lawsuit later, but that's not really preventing the harm in the interim. Right. Like someone's yeah. going to be incarcerated. All of these things are going to happen. And so one of our proposals is that it should be crystal clear that any any state actor who does participate in such extradition uh, can be sued individually. They will have none of this qualified immunity. It will not exist. Now, listen, this seems very reasonable to me and to us, but do I think it's something that a legislature will actually pass? I, I, I'm not particularly optimistic about most of our proposals on this because it will mean a lot of other folks who uh, will not be criminalized in addition to um, folks who are criminalized for abortion. But so so I do think that that, that does police... We have a problem with rampant police impunity uh, in this country, um, and and it will show up here, uh, just like it does in many other sectors. I think sometimes when we talk about criminalization of abortion wholesale for folks that have not been working in and about repro, it feels very new 
like this is something that we need to kind of like gird our loins and prepare for. But folks that have been working in in the RHRJ movements, reproductive rights, health and justice movements, um, we have been talking about criminalization for a long time. And the reason that we've been talking about criminalization is because it's been happening for a long time. So I was talking about my colleague's research that um, the preliminary info just came out. So when she was combing through all of these like, different clerk's offices all over the country. She unearthed like 61 cases of folks being criminalized for self-managed abortion in 26 states. Now we only have three states that have laws criminalizing self-managed abortion left on the books. So holy crap, the fact that there have been prosecutions in 26 states when only, I think at the time that some of these cases were about only like five or six states had these laws on the books tell us that prosecutors are very, very creative in the ways that they go after people. So the likelihood of always seeing abortion written at the top of the warrant is going to be low. And then in some states, we are going to start seeing it because they are going to, if they haven't already criminalized abortion wholesale, any kind of abortion, right? All abortions are going to become self-managed because folks are not able to get clinical care. So it's, it's not new. And I think that's one of the things that I want to make sure that folks understand that there are like criminal defense attorneys can, and can deal with this because it's just, the same messed up ways that they charge people in a variety of other cases. But I, I, I think the shock and awe um, that's hitting some folks who the criminal legal system doesn't move within their lives is I, I need folks to get out of shock and awe quick and get into work mode because some of the things that I'm seeing on the internet while we're talking about how hell is other people and how we can protect ourselves <laughs> in our communities um, some of the ways that folks are talking about this on the internet shows that they're not people that have had the impact of the criminal legal system necessarily touch their lives, right? Like folks that think they're doing OPSEC on Twitter by like, if you want to get a manicure, you can come to my state and I'll pick you up for your manicure. And you know, that's when we talk about how cases get put together on the back end, and I think um, Michelle can probably speak to this too, like as a public defender, when you're seeing how, when you have a very motivated prosecutor, a cop that actually knows how to do their job and the information that they're able to gather when they investigate, yes, they will pull your tweets. Yes, even if it's not your case, they will pull your tweets and connect that person that got their abortion to the tweets that you put online to show that they intended to go to your place to go and get an abortion and then try to use those things to prosecute them over here. So even if you're willing to take the risk with your own life, if you're trying to help people, don't put them in a position that they can be harmed by some of the things that we say out loud. Because if you're living in a state where you're not afraid of criminalization, but the person you are trying to help is in a state that and they have to go back to somewhere they can be criminalized you got to think about how you're protecting them that's my soapbox rant <laughs> i think that's really valuable actually this like we saw it a lot in the trump administration too this like legal constitutional magic that uh like like the um seth abramson the 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 twitter thread guy right like it it um <laughs> it's some it, yeah, it, it distracts from useful organizing and mutual aid because people are just like, well, if this and this and this and this and this and then like, I understand this and no one else does and this is a special secret and then if we do this and turn around three times and go through the wardrobe, then Donald Trump will be impeached or, you know, I can give you a safe, a safe, a safe access to reproductive health care rather than 
just doing the work. And I, th- I think another part of what was going on here, and this has been something that, like, you know, if, if you talk to people who've been doing this, like, okay, if, if, if this is a thing you genuinely want to do, there are people who have been doing this kind of work for decades and decades and decades and decades, and they know largely what is safe and what isn't and what stuff is effective or not, and the, the, the way that this sort of, like, like, the, 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 the kind of sort of, like, Hey, I'm gonna go do this on my own. I have I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing, but uh, here I'm gonna sort of signal that I can do this thing. Like, go talk if you want to do this. Go talk to the people who who have been doing it for ages and go support them because, like, you know, again, like the the reason we're, the reason we're here in the first place is because that this whole like the entire right to abortion has for literally decades been supported by just a, a really tiny number of incredibly underfunded and understaffed people and organizations. So, like, go help them. Don't, like, strike out on your own to boldly get you and everyone you're working with arrested. Yeah, I think, you know, some of that is, you know, I think some people have some good intentions, but, my God, like, that energy could be spent in so much more productive ways, and it's, it's kind of unfortunate. I think that the worst aspect of it, though, is, like, the tech bros coming in and being like, I'm going to save this space with uh, crypto. <laughs> We're going to create a DAO and, like, distribute funds. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I'm just sitting here, like, mm-hmm. you know, because this is something, like, you know, I, I, I've looked into with students, like, this earlier this year, like, you know, how payment transactions could be used. Um, and basically how there's basically almost no security with, with payment transactions, right? Like, like if you're using Venmo, which, which in and of itself has like a social media function. So like, you know, you can see when your, your friend, you know, Joe is like getting brunch on Sunday and like, you know, they could, you know, if you're not sending that to private by default, like that, that's already a problem, but basically like, you know, they, they can get access to those records pretty easily um, in, in a much easier way. And, you know, one of the things we, we, we started to look at, like, towards the end was like, oh, you know, as you know, I had some, some students being like, well, well can, you, can you use crypto? Can you use, like, Bitcoin? It's like, you still have to interact at some point with a financial institution. And they can tie these things yeah. back. It is not that exceptionally hard, especially, like, now it's been shown that, like, Coinbase is, like, cooperating with the feds and basically acting like a giant honeypot. So, like... I just, I, I fundamentally wish that like, people would just like realize that like technology is not going to save us here. Like it can help if used wisely and creatively, but don't think that like, you're just going to like do this one little neat trick, like as James was saying, and then suddenly we're going to fix this because it's not right. Like this is going to take a million different solutions with a million different people doing all the little things that they can to push back. And like, that's one of the things I think we, we tried to be very humble about in our paper is like, look, None of this is a silver bullet. We're just trying to provide some concrete um, solutions that states can take and some steps that they can take. But we realize that nothing is ever going to be perfect to, to solve this kind of Pandora's box that's been opened by Alito and, and all these like right-wing reactionaries on the court. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If 
you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. So I guess speaking of things that are not silver bullets and will not save us, um, yeah, I guess could we get a bit more into looking at what the sort of, like, because like a lot of this article is talking about, I guess, the the... The the, the 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 history of extradition uh and how how that's sort of been understood and interpreted and so i guess i was wondering yeah could, could, could we go into talking about what the sort of legal stuff is going to look like when it, it like you know if if we start getting these large showdowns between like states with like actually sort of like you know if, if states actually start trying to have sanctuary laws that are like have teeth and are good what 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 is that sort of what is that going to look like yeah, so th this is the kind of part that I, I focused on in the article. And so basically, a lot of people aren't aware about this because it's not really a contested area of the Constitution. But basically, when the Constitution was drafted um, and, and ratified, it, it contained what was called the extradition clause. And basically what it said is that, you know, all the states have a duty to turn over fugitives from other states that have been charged with the crime and have fled into those states. Because the United States is kind of weird. It's, it's a federal system, so like every state is still considered kind of its own sovereign in some ways, in a very like quasi sovereign way. And so there was a question about you know since all criminal prosecutions basically at especially at the inception of the United States were done at the state level, 
you know, what, what happens when somebody crosses and uh, across state lines, like how are we going to handle that? And so basically this was, you know, one of the, the drafts and initially they tried to set it at a higher bar, like to be like high crimes and misdemeanors, similar to kind of the impeachment clause. And, you know, they whittled it down to, and basically made it very applicable to set all crimes. Um, but it really did not get much play until basically in the 1840s when obviously the tension around slavery picked up, right? So you had enslaved people escaping to the North and the South being very angry about that and wanting the North to, to return um, the escaped enslaved folks and the North being like, no. And Congress tried to figure out a way to like thread some kind of needle, but made it 10 times worse and put us on an accelerating path towards civil war by passing the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. And a bunch of radical abolitionists in the Northeast were like, we don't ever want to comply with this, right? So like Vermont passed this bill called the, the Habeas Corpus Act, which basically created all kinds of legal procedures so that Southern bounty hunters wouldn't just come into the state and just kidnap, you know, the first um, black person they saw because they assumed that they were been an escaped enslaved person rather than a free person. And, you know, and, and it was trying to stop that kind of issue of kidnappings and also just not to comply with this, you know, the institution of slavery because there were people who had escaped slavery and were in the North. And so it was causing all kinds of tension. And while like the, the Vermont law was never fully tested it did like create a lot of incendiary back and forth between like the north and the south and, and the press and it was really interesting like reading some of these old like newspaper articles from the like 18 like from 1850 because it was like basically like the press in richmond and the press in boston like taking stabs at each other and it was like <laughs> the 1850 version of ship posting because they were like one person was just like this is nullification made easy and like basically with like it's just it was the, it was the most surreal thing. Like if you know if you get a chance when when our full article comes out in December, there'll be some some uh, highlights from that in the footnotes. Um, but basically, what it really got tested was in 1861. The case started in 1859, though. Um, it was called Kentucky v. Denison. And so what what essentially happened is there was someone who aided um, an enslaved person escape Kentucky and get to Ohio. And basically, the governor of Ohio was an abolitionist and was like, I don't want to comply with this, right? And I do not want, I don't believe like this is a crime because this is not a crime in our state. And the attorney general of Ohio basically wrote a long legal memo stating that this, this is a crime not known to the laws of civilization or man. So basically, yeah, they fought. And so it went all the way to the Supreme Court and Chief Justice Taney, also notable for Dred Scott decision. So like absolutely... You know, just terrible court. Like they were, this came, I think about like three weeks before the civil war. So this was like, I think it's in like March of 1861. So it basically like three weeks before Fort Sumter got like sacked by, by the South. Um, but basically what it did was, is that it said states actually can't utilize any discretion in extradition. So like the, like the governor of Ohio can't say like, I have concerns about human rights and that this isn't a crime in our state, right? There's not this dual criminality analysis and we're concerned about human rights and all these things. So the Supreme Court basically said, no, states don't have that discretion, which, you know, they, but they essentially like split the baby by, by then saying federal courts can't issue a writ of mandamus, which is basically an order for a government official to do something. 
Um, they said that federal courts couldn't do that to a state governor in extradition. So basically it means that like states don't have discretion, but federal courts can't enforce it. So therefore it's just a non-issue, right? Fast forward 120 years and we get to a case called Puerto Rico v. Brandstad, uh, which basically somebody committed murder in Puerto Rico, fled back to Iowa, and then was sought for extradition back to Puerto Rico. And there's a huge element of racism here because... You know, they were concerned that a white man couldn't get a fair trial in Puerto Rico, which is just deeply offensive. Um, and so they were and there was also a question of like territoriality, right? Because Puerto Rico is a territory. I wasn't sure if like they had to comply with the extradition clause. And so essentially the Supreme Court said, yes, federal courts can comply uh, with um, or can issue a writ of mandamus to to ensure extradition. So essentially what it did was it partially overturned the Kentucky v. Denison case, but upheld the central ruling and basically says states have no discretion. So what does that mean? Basically that states can't really stop the extradition of someone in their, in their um, jurisdiction, even if they have extreme concerns, right? So like if you have, like, let's say going back to Michelle's example earlier, someone who sends their friends like abortion pills um, from New York to, let's say, Texas, right? And Texas is seeking extradition and New York's like, well, that's not a crime here, so we don't want to extradite. Um, you know, the states would typically be hard-pressed, but there's kind of two kind of, or there's one major issue with like the extradition part, right? It actually has to apply to someone who's, quote unquote, an actual fugitive, meaning that they had to actually be present in the state when the crime occurred. And the commission of the crime can't in itself create what's called constructive presence. You have to be corporeally present in the state, meaning you have to be physically present. You can't just like the, the commission of the crime doesn't constitute that. So in this instance, um, you know, the person who sends a pill in New York technically like constitutionally does not have to be extradited, right? Like they can contest that. The problem is, as Michelle pointed out, is that, you know, the extradition clauses that exist today is pretty much almost entirely just a, a, a formality that is waived basically almost every single time. And so the courts, the like the state attorneys, the district attorneys, even defense attorneys might not be familiar with that and might not know that that's something that they could potentially contest, or it's even something that they can, um, that, that it's a potential constitutional issue, right? And so that's one of the things that we focused on as our potential solution um, is to ensure that people who were not present in the state where the, the act occurred um, are able to mount a challenge to the extradition. Um, you know, it creates all kinds of other problems because there's still federal extradition, meaning like if you leave this, the country and come back in, like Border Patrol could potentially get you. We still don't have a clear understanding of how that necessarily would work. Um, you know, and because that's never been a question that's like fully resolved. So, you know, the, the, basically, the, you know, at the end of the day, like we want to make sure that like folks are aware of that. But like the folks that like leave Texas, right? So like if you committed an abortion, you were charged in Texas and you go to New York, like New York is not going to have very many options to protect you from being extradited back to Texas. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that, you know, I fundamentally believe Kentucky v. Denison was wrong, was wrongly decided uh, on the sense that states shouldn't be able to have a concern around human rights because it essentially acts as a one-way ratchet where the states with the most regressive anti-human rights criminal justice laws get to have 
like get to dictate that over all of the other states. Similar to how um, slavery, like the, the southern states were trying to enforce the institution of slavery on northern states that had that had abolished slavery decades ago. So it's a very complicated issue. And again, I, I reach back to that slavery analysis because not because I, I think that, you know, sl the slavery and abortion should be compared directly, but because this is like this is fundamentally the last time where you have criminal laws that are so different between states. Like one state's human right is another state's capital crime. Like it's, you can't get further apart than that. Yeah. And I wanted to just clarify for folks, if I drove the pill to Texas, then I would have committed the crime in Texas and New York could extradite me. Um, and I, what I also think I, I'm sort of here is the, what happens on the ground, right? So if you, to be clear, while, as Alejandra correctly points, if I just mailed it to Texas, then they have the warrant. While we're sorting out this extradition warrant, I am very likely incarcerated. And the sorting out of the extradition warrant will probably take 90 days. So just because, and I think folks get confused with this a lot, just because something is illegal doesn't mean, or, or your lawyer's arguing it's illegal, doesn't mean it just magically stops um, or the process ends. And so this is something where we think that um, really, there should be a basis to contest your extradition on a human rights ground, on two grounds. Either there is no dual criminality, that is, this is not actually a crime in the other state. Interestingly here, handing someone a prescription pill in New York is actually a felony, whether or not you get money for it. Uh, most folks don't know that. Eve's smiling because she also was a public defender in, in New York City. Because um, uh, it blows your mind. You're like, wait, they just handed it to them? There's no money exchanged? Yeah, that's a felony drug sale. So we might have dual criminality. New York might actually say, um, you did do a crime, so I will extradite you, which is why we think there also needs to be uh, a human rights defense. And this may also extend to, well, we're not going to extradite them to Texas because they have the death penalty. And we think that is a clear contravention of human rights. Maybe we can extend it to prison conditions. I don't know how that far that goes. Again, these are things I don't know they'd be likely to be codified. But if we're actually dreaming up the world that we think where this could work, like I, as your attorney, should be able to come in and say there's no dual criminality. This is in contravention of human rights. And once I mount that defense, then the court is bound to release you while we sort that out. Um, and and that is sort of our vision. Uh, another thing that that Alejandra mentioned, the the, Ver, the Vermont law um, in the 1800s. And one of the things that it said was you could get a jury of your peers in, in a situation like this. There's no jury in an extradition case. But the idea, of course, is that a jury is going to say this is morally wrong. I don't care what the law says. We're not sending this person back to enslavement. And the idea here is if you put a jury in on a, and you assert a human rights defense, perhaps the jury will say, no, we're not sending you. So these are these are a lot yes. of ideas that we've been coming up with. So we're, we're doing the, the, the plan there was jury nullification. Yes, it, oh. it absolutely was. It absolutely was jury nullification. Yeah. Was part I of the love, plan. love, 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 love jury nullification. I, I anybody with the law review that's listening to this, let me write about jury nullification for you. And I feel abortion. like they won't, but, but we, we, we I, I feel like yeah, I, I have been you. wanting to explain jury nullification on this show literally since yeah. the like I, I asked Call if I could do an episode on it one. the first week. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Call me back for the next one. I, so I 
there's something that I don't want to be lost. And that's the idea of like people don't necessarily know what they're being charged with in the state that's asking for them to go back. Because there's not really a requirement that that... So for an extradition, like thinking through what you actually need, like the bare bones of an extradition, it needs to be like a piece of paper that's signed by the governor, but not necessarily the governor of the state, but somebody with authority to ask for you to return back. And that's in essence it, right? Just like a piece of paper signed by somebody that says XYZ, birth date XYZ, did a crime in our state, give them back to us, right? Oh, they don't have to say what crime. Not really a requirement. It usually says it, but it doesn't. Requ- it d- doesn't require hmm. a probable cause affidavit, which I think is really hmm. the more important part. Yeah. It doesn't require you to prove that there is enough to charge them with a crime in the sending state, right? So we're saying that's a bare minimum change that we can make to laws to make the state that's asking for you to use your resources to put somebody in a cage. And then put them in a traveling cage to bring them to our cages. Um, and I keep saying the word cage because I, I don't want us to move away from what like prisons and jails actually are. It's like bars and cages and boxes, right? So it, does it really harm the system? Does it really tear y'all apart to say, and here's what they're being charged with and the reason why? Because that would be the bare minimum for someone to be charged for a crime in New York, you would need to have probable cause for the arrest. And then a judge that's sitting on the bench gets to say, yep, there's enough probable cause for this person to be charged. Next court date, you know? And But we don't have that with extradition. We just trust that the wheels of bureaucracy are turning the way that they need to. Holy crap, that can harm so many people. So we're just saying, hey, make them write it down. So maybe a judge that's sitting in Illinois can look at this warrant from Missouri that says, we want XYZ back here because of a self-managed abortion. And then they can see whether or not Illinois' new fancy extradition law, which they haven't written yet, but I'm sure they will, applies, right? I I think that's a bare (coughs) minimum that we can do. And as much as I crave shaking systems and tearing them apart, I don't think that's going to be a thing that does it. But it might... You know, have y'all ever played Mario Kart? You know, when you're yeah. driving and you're able to throw like the turtle shell or the banana, that might be the banana that might slow down the process of somebody kind of getting dragged along on this course. Well, and, and I think I think there's like there's another thing that that would do, too, which is that that buys time for community response. Because like, you know, if, if we go back to sort of the ice stuff, it was like, well, yeah, OK, like ice raids weren't stopped by the sanctuary laws the thing that like did slow them down was massive community response yeah i think i think that's very uh it's certainly i've seen that happen here like in san diego it wasn't any of our performative democrat laws it it, it was people getting out into the street yeah i was gonna say there's it's also like in the uk in the last couple of months there's been a lot of really really impressive community defense things and like cops showing up and like just entire communities and neighborhoods showing up but the cops just like running away and it's been it's been incredible to watch and uh you too can also do this but performative democrats keep giving us good laws like give us something give anything like a nub of a thing that folks can hang their hats on um i i just don't want any politician out there to think that they're absolved from the job of protecting people yeah, well, and, and, I, and I think, I think again, the thing with these laws, right, is, like, you, you actually, like, 
with this extradition stuff, like, I don't know how, like, I, I don't know how you would even, like, try to stop it unless, like, because, like, you don't know... Like, I mean, I, I, like, unless unless you're going to commit to try to stop trying to stop every person who gets arrested, which I think is like a noble goal. But like, there's no we don't have the capacity for that. Like, if, if, if we lived in a world where we could do that, like <laughs> the world would be much better and the state would be running for its life. But yeah, it's like like it, it seems like a thing that like it, 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 it gives like it gives time for the law to act. More importantly, it's like it gives time for us to act and that that seems that, really important. That's absolutely one of the most important things. Is it's buying time for people to organize and people to be able to push back, and also creates a higher barrier, right? Like at the end of the day, like these systems are still made of people, and people are incredibly lazy, and oftentimes like the police and other yeah. <laughs> folks like don't want to have to deal with like engaging and going with like an extradition request because like, the actual process for in, in dealing with that is actually very onerous. Like, um, they have to physically go to the state to pick them up and they have to, like, do all these things, right? And so what we're doing is, like, what we're suggesting is, like, make it even harder. Like, make it absolutely hard for them to, to go through this and actually have to litigate in courts and, like, bring all this stuff. Um, and, and just basically, like, slow down the process and, and raise that kind of barrier to entry on it. But, you know, I think, like, I think that's, you know, very um, important to say is, like, you know, it, the, the community defense aspect, like, cannot be overstated because at the end of the day, like, laws are just words on paper right like it's it's the people that give them the effect and the power so uh really what we need is like people say like this is morally wrong right like we're not going to prosecute people for for exercising their bodily autonomy and engaging in a fundamental human right and so you know one, one of the things i've been heartened by is you know um it's like elm fork john brown Cl gun club in dallas like what they've been doing like protecting houseless folks like under the overpasses like they show up and like you know, in Texas, they can open carry and like the police don't want to deal with them. So they're like buying a few more days so that the the, the Dallas police doesn't um, come in and sweep, you know, the only belongings that these people have. And like that in and of itself brought so much attention that like brought so much scrutiny to Dallas PD's actions. So like it, it's that kind of community defense. And I think it also harkens back to how these extradition issues like prior to like the civil war worked out. It wasn't necessarily like these formal systems in Vermont that like stopped, you know, escaped enslaved persons from being returned back to the South. It was like entire mobs of people coming and like being like, you're not taking this person out of our town. And if you try to, you're not going to leave here like as a whole person, I, I guess is probably the yeah. best way to put that. Um, Shoot your local bounty hunter. Yeah. And so like, essentially like that that's how it worked right and like you know at the end of the day like i feel like you know i, I don't want to endorse any kind of violence but like it, like what really what it means is like when people show up and they physically put themselves in, in 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 the way it makes it so much harder for the like this kind of wheel of injustice to to continue and so that's really what it's going to take and like you were mentioning with like the with the ice raids and everything like that like it took people it sometimes physically putting their bodies in front of ice fans to stop them from driving away and like chaining themselves to, to stuff. And like, that's the kind of like nonviolent, like direct action that I think is like going to be like needed. Yeah. And I, I think folks seem to have figured out that their district attorneys are elected and the person bringing the fugitive case, which I don't think I've been crystal clear about is the district attorney. So then you, the, the police officer is going to go to the district attorney's office and, and that is the person who's going to bring the court case to help facilitate sending the person. Um, 
And I know New York recently has seen a number of successes of folks organizing around individual people be saying, you need to drop these charges. This conviction got overturned. You should not be continuing with the case. This person is a for whatever reason folks are organizing around, right? And so if we can create some delays whereby the person is free, right? Because this is the key thing. We don't want people incarcerated. Incarceration in and of itself is extreme violence, right? So if the person is not incarcerated, then we can sort of delay this process and organize around pressuring whoever needs to be pressured, particularly the the toothless Democratic politicians who say they're against all of this stuff, but then at the end of the day, are they going to ignore the homicide extradition warrant? Like, that's where the rubber meets the road. Are you going to do it or not, right? Yeah. And 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 I think that's a much harder question when it comes down to that for them because they're like, well, it's a homicide warrant, right? And, and so that's where they need the pressure because um, all the wild ideas go out the door in that moment. Yeah, I think, like, I think that's the thing with, with these people is, like, ideologically like they don't care enough to do it do it but if you but you can force them to care yeah they right? care you about can, having a job or, yeah. yeah well it's not not even just so much that like there there are long established ways of putting pressure on people and systems that can force them to do things they don't want to do and yeah go do that because <laughs> we're gonna need and it frankly i think part of this is also destigmatizing work right um mm-hmm. because when we have kind of these big divergent ideas when we find ourselves at this split of like good versus evil, right? Like slavery versus not slavery, bodily autonomy versus not bodily autonomy. Um, Sometimes the good guys compromise to the point that we get ourselves to this position later on down the line. And what we can do is kind of galvanize community response and also civic engagement by forcing folks to take a look at the laws that we so rely on and questioning why does this thing exist this way? Why is this process moving that way? Someone that didn't know that folks facing an extradition warrant like often have to make the decision at an arraignment, am I going to waive my right to extradition and wait for them to come get me? Because they said that takes 30 days for them to come and get you. But if you don't waive, it's going to take 90 days for them to come and get you. So you'll be sitting there longer. And that's a decision that you need to make kind of like in that moment. If we're talking about extradition in normal conversation, we're moving forward to a place where we're destigmatizing and frankly, demystifying what the criminal legal system really looks like in the nuts and bolts. It might end up with better conversations and better output for folks in the future. It might end up with you being able to talk about jury nullification and having like, (laughs) and not having it be kind of like a shaking the table conversation. Because frankly, these are all like civics, it's civics, it's rights, it's things that are written in the constitution that governs us where the cops don't need to know the law, but we're all expected to. Right. So it it takes all kinds. It takes all responses for us to just get to the place that's better than the stopgap that Roe had been giving us for the last 40 some odd years. And I'll I'll say like the one thing that does terrify me in this end is like, or I guess like really concerns me is like what Ron DeSantis just did in Florida in Hillsborough County. Like I grew up in Hillsborough County. So I'm from there. So it's like, like the twice elected uh, state attorney there was just suspended because he said he would refuse to um, prosecute crimes related to abortion and gender affirming care. He like also refused to like prosecute trans people using the bathroom, right? So like these kinds of things. And 
DeSantis just like sacked him, right? An elected person that like reflects the values of that county. And so like that, that's the other thing to, to be aware of. It's, you know, like even when you do exercise that power and like say like this is our, as a community, these are our values on like who we should be prioritizing um, in the criminal justice system. There are still people out there that will will try to circumvent that in a very authoritarian and autocratic way. And so, um, you know, I think it's not just who you're voting for your local DA. It's who, who are you voting for a governor? Who are you voting for, like, you know, th these people that have uh, broader powers over this? Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. I wanted to briefly talk about this because uh, I know like it was proposed at least by my representative. The and I think it's being like bandied about as a solution, uh, and uh, it doesn't seem like it is. But this My Body My Data Act, uh, which I, I was trying to read 
through it a little earlier. It seems like it allows people to like sue tech companies for selling their data that leads to their prosecution. I don't know if you all are familiar with it, but maybe we could just discuss a little bit. What? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, so <laughs> I'm I'm not familiar, but based on what you just said, right? I think there's this, and I really think it goes back to what Evco is saying about folks just like not not fully understanding precisely how the criminal legal system just like runs over people. Okay, great. So I can sue the tech company after the police have put me in a cage and and convicted me based on the date. Like, like, okay. I mean, great. Maybe I'll have a lot of money on my commissary. My family will have enough, um, like, uh, funds to come drive and visit me at whatever state prison they've got me locked up in. Right? Like, like this is where we have to step back and think: Are is this is this thing actually preventing the harm? Because I I think a lot of times folks are just like, well, we can sue them or we could get back at them, and and I also want folks to remember that just making something illegal does not prevent harm, right? And and we can have a whole other conversation about criminalization as a solution to anything, which I think it is not. <laughs> um, but but just on on the face of what you've said to me, I, that doesn't sound like a solution. That if I I, I it wouldn't feel adequate to me <laughs> if it, if I yeah, were in yeah. that situation. <laughs> and also uh, thinking about how cases become cases from what we know, it it's not again, it's not coming from big data down, right? For the most part, it certainly can happen, but really what's happening is violations of people's Fourth Amendment rights, <laughs> cops being able to access things on people's actual devices, oftentimes without warrants, oftentimes by not fully explaining that people have the right to say no. Um, and I'm sure Michelle has had clients that were like, oh, they just took my phone. How many times have we heard that, right? They just took my phone and started going through it. A police officer that does that is not going to write in their report. And I just took his phone without any permission. It's always permission was granted. It was in plain view. I saw it from the street. I smelled it as he was walking by. Like exactly. if the laws that are being created are not actually responsive to the harm that folks are experiencing in a way that actually prevents it, then we need to kind of push back at our legislators and say, okay, this is great. But is it responding to the thing that you're saying it's responding to? Because, yeah, shout out to people being able to sue big tech for selling our data without our permission. Bet. But is that going to prevent prosecutors from going after folks that have abortions? Probably not. Because even in the Nebraska case that Alejandra mentioned at the top of the hour, that was a warrant that was signed by a judge. It was a search warrant that was provided to Facebook that didn't say the words abortion on it, that didn't say that we're going after someone for abortion. It had, I think, the words like abuse of a corpse or something of that nature on there. And for them, it was rote what they normally do, bureaucracy, search warrant, stamp, here's the data that you're looking for. A law that prevents folks from selling your data doesn't prevent that from happening. Something I think a lot about those, one of my sort of like formative political experiences was back in like 2000, I think this was happening in 2012, 2013, um, right after the, the revolution in Bahrain. So, okay, so the revolution in Bahrain, Saudi tanks roll in, they crush it, they kill a bunch of people, and the government starts doing this crackdown. The way the government does the crackdown is they go they they go to Facebook and they, 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 they take stuff that was on people's public accounts and then they go to Facebook and they ask them for information and Facebook turns it over. And, you know, the government just goes through and finds everyone who's at a protest and starts arresting them. 
And, you know, Facebook was just like, yeah. And like that, if, you know, if, 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 if they, if they will comply with a literal monarchy who has had a second monarchy send an army across the border in order to crush a bunch of protests, like they're going to comply with the U S and they're going to keep doing this stuff to you. And so, yeah, I was like, I like, even if you can sue them, they're still going to cooperate with the U S government because yeah, they have a greater <laughs> financial interest in doing so. Yeah. Big tech doesn't give a fuck about you. Yeah, I think, folks, again, as Eve was saying, like Eve was saying, it was just so, like, this is rote. This is what they do every day. This is not that serious or that deep to them. And I think we need to start asking bigger questions about why do we have a system where it's so easy for the government to just, like, come in and... um have a subpoena signed like the subpoenas are easy to get like we have these mechanisms are all in place and that's what i was sort of saying earlier is that i i think folks who haven't been paying attention to this who are all of a sudden like wow how is this happening oh my goodness well these are the machines of mass incarceration that we have spent a few decades really building up and so now when the person the people you're sympathetic with start to get criminalized all of a sudden we're very shocked. And listen, however you got here, great. Welcome. I'm glad folks are here and saying like, wow, this is a problem. And I want folks to think the if, if the abortion context and the self-managed abortion is your entry point, I hope it is not the end point. I hope that you are thinking bigger about how did all these systems get here? Who do they serve? And and and. I hope, how do we dismantle them? Because it's it's not just this select few people, group of people that we should care about. I think it's all the people who are who are exposed to this on, on the daily. Um, so yeah, that's my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder how many judges um, have refused to sign a search warrant. That's like a big wonder of mine. <laughs> I, I don't, judges don't hang out with me, obviously, for a lot of obvious <laughs> reasons. But if I were to like, just whisper in my ear real quick. How many times have you ever said no to a police officer that comes to ask to swear a warrant in front of you? How many times have you found there is no probable cause, dude? Like, like this well, is I mean, sketchy. Okay. This is weird. To 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 be fair, there 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 are there have there there have to be a certain number of times where they're trying to go after another judge. Or they're trying no, to go after like don't do that. Bill Clinton or something. After like, other judges, I, I don't know. It, it, it's got to have happened once. Like there, there has to have been one time where a cop yeah, was like, co- "This okay. judge pissed me off. I'm going to go raid his car or something." Never, never. That I can probably like that. <laughs> I can think about never happening. But I just wonder how many times has somebody said we are going to go search for drugs in XYZ house in this specific neighborhood that a cop, that a judge says, huh, you don't have enough here. Try again. It doesn't happen. Yeah. At well, least not in state court. Like- I'm told in federal court, maybe, maybe, you know, they turned down one out of 25, but in state court, our, my experience is it, it's, it's, it's again, it's routine. Yeah. It's just how things go. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I came across when I was, you know, it's not dealing with particularly judges issuing warrants, but one of the things I, I uh, did when when I was looking into the payment app issue this past uh, spring um, is, you know, I talked to a former prosecutor and was like, you know, what is it like to get documents from or or data from like Facebook and, and you know Instagram or, or Meta or whatnot or like Twitter or any of these other places, and they were just like, 
oh, we just sent a request. Like, we don't even, like, it's basically an administrative subpoena, and they just, like, hand over everything. <laughs> like, um, it's basically just, like, so routine oftentimes, especially if it's coming from a district attorney's office or law enforcement. Like, oftentimes these com- companies just, like, casually hand over stuff all the time, especially when it's, like, dealing with low-level drug stuff um, or uh, any kind of, like, issues like that. You know, they, they, they like to say, oh, we're, we're big on, on civil rights and, and stuff like that and, and making sure your data is protected. But in reality, like, there's so many requests around this stuff and it's just, you know, it, the only time they ever maybe make a stand is when a case is higher profile and it may damage their brand, right? And that's the, that's the only time they actually ever care. On the defense attorney side, it's hard as heck to get your client's records for things. Yeah. Like, so hard. So, so hard. You're looking for information on a Facebook for somebody that's incarcerated that might get them out of jail and they don't remember their password. You don't know how to get into their stuff. And it needs to be not a screenshot because that you might not be able to get that authenticated and admissible in court. And it is so hard when you're working on the other side and not in law enforcement to get data and information. But on the flip side, when it comes to like people's medical information, which comes into play in a lot of these cases, because we're at this intersection of bodily autonomy and health and the criminal legal system. I, we've certainly seen in cases where folks are having a medical emergency and cops are able to just go and do a bedside interview with somebody that's coming out of surgery, still drugged up, right? They're able to just go up to a charge nurse and being like, so how's he doing? And they're getting information. That's wild. Cause I have had requests for my client's medical records with signed HIPAA authorizations returned because I signed with blue ink instead of black ink. It's not rote. (laughs) It's not rote when it's not coming from law enforcement sometimes. And that's kind of the wild thing. There's this assumption that folks in law enforcement have a right to all information at all times forever. And that's where things get rubber stamped. And that's the stuff that we're not really looking at that have large impact on how people access their rights. I was just, as we were talking about like Facebook, knowing everything about you and uh, loving the cops, uh, I was like reminded of Foucault's panopticon and like this idea that you'll start to internalize discipline because you never know when you're being watched, right? Um, and so I wondered like, if obviously like uh, when Foucault talks about it, the idea is that you will do, you act like you think the state is watching because the state could always be watching. Therefore you have to, act like it is watching uh and like it's it we're not there yet right like like, oh we're totally there have you not heard the fbi in your phone joke the fbi (laughs) on my computer like i hope he likes my makeup today we're totally there like i think there's an assumption that we're all being watched i don't know you sometimes i wish our clients uh thought they were being watched more because sometimes people (laughs) put too much on facebook (laughs) We yeah, all do. Right. Well, yeah, you're right. Let me not keep myself from that because I am very much included. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so like, that's what I wanted to ask, right? Like, how do we not, uh, I'm not, obviously, you know, we don't want people to listen to this and do crimes, but um, like, how should people act in their interactions, uh, like, in, in a way that is, like, I guess, uh, I don't know, that makes them less vulnerable to like these very obvious OPSEC fails, I guess. Um, I have some resources. Uh, so yeah, perfect. at If When How, we have this thing called the Repro Legal Helpline. It's reprolegalhelpline.org. It's also a warm line with a phone number that people can call and ask questions like, what are my rights when it comes to 
my abortion, my self-managed abortion. And on that website, we have digital tips about how do you protect yourself and sanitize your digital space just for safety as a whole, not to hide information from everyone, but how do you move and prevent and minimize your risks? What does harm reduction look like to you? We also have the repro legal defense fund and that exists for folks when they are actually being criminalized to pay for things like bail help out with attorney's fees help out with expert fees so there are folks that are working on this stuff that exists as resources and there are resources out there but i i would tell folks to really think about who are you telling your business to um when you share information is that information that's necessary for treatment that you're being asked um just because we're used to being in spaces where there is a power imbalance about sharing all of the information that's asked of us. And I think when it comes to spaces and times where we're more vulnerable um, to state actors causing harm to us, being mindful about what questions are you being asked and is that question necessary for you to be able to receive care or services X, Y, Z. And it sucks to have to put work on the back of folks that are already being oppressed by systems. It's absolute trash. And I fully recognize that's, it's, it's messed up. But, um, when we're (laughs) thinking, when we're thinking about what does harm reduction look like, I think that's one of those things that we have to keep in mind. Um, and harm reduction also looks like folks knowing generally what the law is and being able to advocate for themselves in those spaces. Yeah. I'll just add from my side from like, kind of just, you know, from, from a cyber perspective, it's, you know, just in general ways, like there's nothing that's going to be bulletproof right, or, or a silver bullet in terms of always protecting your privacy, but like the quicker ways that you can kind of at least make yourself generally safer is use apps like Signal for, for chatting. Um, also use like auto delete features, um, you know, don't don't keep like years worth of, of text messages and stuff like that. Um, additionally, um, you know, it, don't use biometrics uh, because you don't have a Fifth Amendment right for self-incrimination for, for biometrics, right? So it's, it's a long, long reason why that is in the courts. Use a password. Don't use a short pin. Use a password. I know it's annoying. I know it's a like, you know, a fingerprint or face like unlock is like much more convenient. But, you know, if you are at high risk or you worry about this stuff and you're concerned about your privacy, like use those things because they can't compel you to, to, to do that generally. Um, you know, the other things, uh, is, um, the Yuki app, E-U-K-I, um, uh, which is a, um, sexual health app that has a lot of information about, um, you know, reproductive, um, issues. Um, it also has like a, a menstrual tracker, but it's all encrypted client side. Uh, they, they get no data, um, and it has, a, it prompts you for a password and pin to open it. Um, and it also has uh, uh, resources for self-managed abortion um, and, and how to safely handle those. Um, and yeah, you know, just generally, you know, anything you put out there on social media, also like be careful, like what you, you, you put out there, like stay to end and end to end encryption, use VPNs if you can, you know, the, these are just kind of like general stuff, like nothing is again, ever going to be foolproof, but yeah, it, there are some small steps you can take to at least increase some of your protections. And on my end, you know, you have a right to remain silent. You should use it. Uh, And thanks to the Supreme Court, you have to say, I want to be silent in order to invoke your right to be silent. You cannot just be silent. Um, So you, I would advise people to say, I want to be silent and I want a lawyer. Those are the magic words. I also want to hold that 
being captured by police officers is a violent experience and a scary experience. And sometimes asserting your rights can provoke more violence. And so people do what they need to do to stay safe in that moment. Um, from a, the law perspective, saying I would, I want to be silent and I want a lawyer um, are the things that invoke all of your constitutional protections. Um, and the police may lie about whether or not you said that later. So, you know, re- say it as many times as you need to, but those are really the only things you should say, which is a lot um, easier said than done. Um, but that that is the, the thing that folks should do if they do find themselves um, in the custody of law enforcement. And also, if you're on the street, ask if you're free to go. And if you're free to go, please walk, do not run away. There's also a case about that. Ah, <laughs> oh. oh, God, hate the cops. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you all so much for joining us. Um, this this has been really great. And yeah, yeah. don't talk to cops. <laughs> yep. Would you like to plug anything before we uh, leave with Don't Talk to Cops? Yeah, I can just draw my personal side. Uh, you can follow me on all socials on Twitter and Insta um, at Esquire underscore. It's like portmanteau of, of Esquire and Queer. S-E-S-Q-U-E-E-R <laughs> underscore. Um, and also I have a podcast called Queering the Law. Um, or talk about a lot of these issues as well. Um, so if you want to give that a listen. Um, don't follow me on social media because uh, all my stuff is closed. Uh, but I would uh, recommend that folks follow at If When How on all socials because we're always uh, providing up-to-date information on what's actually going on with criminalization of self-managed abortion and resources from, you know, community partners that are on the ground, local, that are doing the work. So if folks are looking to get connected, I would say reach out to If One How and we can usually point you in the right direction. You could follow me on Twitter, but I don't really remember what my handle is. So uh, <laughs> what I would suggest that you do... Uh, Pre-trial detention and bail litigation is really my heart. You got folks locked up and they haven't even been found guilty. Not that anyone should be locked up. So donate to your local bail fund. Uh, if you don't know who that is, there's a lot of orgs, national bailout, um, the bail project. There's a lot of places you can find that. But throwing five, ten, fifteen dollars uh, at your local bail fund will get someone free because you can purchase your freedom here in 2022 America. So um, do that. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, this has been Nick and Happen here. Uh, you can find us in places. Uh, don't talk to cops. And yeah, if there weren't any cops, you couldn't make things illegal. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. 
And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.